Yeah. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. Uh, I'm Shelley, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and we'll start our web conference this morning with a karakia. Unihia te pō, tōmakia te ao, te ao, tātai ki ronga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahirau, Kia ora, and welcome to GMS here in Wellington. If you have a look here, we've got our experts Joe, Graham, and Ben. And I'll let them introduce themselves. <laughs> We've got Joe, Kamato. Hey, hey, Tene. Hey, hey. Orena. Orena. So, Kamato here at GNS Science. And you'll remember these fellas from the last couple of days, but Graham and Ben. Hello. So these fellows work on volcanoes, and you can find out more about them in their profile on the website. And if I have a look up here, if you look in the background there, you'll be able to see some screens. There we go. So we're actually in a major hub. We are at the GeoNet Centre. The National Geohazard Monitoring Centre, the NGMC. There you go. It's got a very special name because it's a very special outfit that runs 24-7 monitoring our geohazards. And you can check out that on the website. Go to the GeoNet website and you'll be able to actually see what these guys are looking at as well. You'll be able to see um, things like earthquakes, um, the volcanic alert levels at the moment. And it's always fascinating to go into GeoNet and see which... <laughs> Places are having earthquakes because there's always earthquakes happening. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So looking around, you'll be able to see that myself and Graham and Ben, we're looking a little shabby on it, I'd have to say. A little bit tired because we've travelled such a long way over the last couple of days um, travelling across our super volcano and it's been quite the journey. We've been all over the show exploring the volcano system and you can find out more about that by checking out the videos which are online. Follow that journey of Rangi and find out more about our super volcano system. Not just one volcano but a whole system. And we'll get underway with our questions. A big welcome to Havelock North High School who will be asking us questions this morning and great to see listening schools with us today as well. Um, do have a few, few people that want to say, well, a few ambassadors that want to say hello. So we've got Kevin from Sacred Heart School. We've got Totara, Satuatara from <coughs> Papakofai School. We've got Hippie from Waipipi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Maya, the cheeky Kia, the Learns Ambassador. So, if you want to know what those guys have been up to over the week, do check out their pages. But they just wanted to say a big hello before we get started as well. So, have a look, North High School. We'll get started with your questions. And if you can say your first name so that we know who we're talking to. And we'll have question number one, please. Henry. 
We saw a GNS video on measuring sulfate chloride ions in the crater lake. Do geologists measure these in Lake Taupo to track activity? Mm, good question. Yeah, yes, they do. And um, they monitor quite a lot of things. Um, whenever any one of those monitors rattle or shake and roll, it gets measured right back here. And then the, our engineers in the monitoring room will analyze the detail that gets sent here. And then they'll trigger the right people who to contact if it's a bad, nasty thingy. We send out our um, recovery crew. When I say recovery, to recover the information, or just to have a closer look at what's happening on the crater lake. And if it's a serious thing, then it gets that information goes straight to the PM's office or someone in, in the office there to make a higher, uh, more, more senior decision on which actions to take. Kia ora. Kia ora. So I also wanted to check on the exact chemistry you asked about. I'm, uh, I'm in our volcano monitoring team, so I logged into our dashboard of all the different things that we look at that are on the screens behind me. Yeah. And I can say, yes, actually, for Topor, we monitor chloride and sulfate. So if I turn around this way, I put them on another screen here. This, is, this back room is called the bullpen. We break out into this room if there's a crisis. There isn't one today, so we're just using it for the video conference. And you can see there, there's a set of chemistry diagrams, and that one is chloride. And further down, there's sulfate. Now, those are for hot springs around Lake Topor. So we don't measure the lake itself because there's so much rainwater coming in through the rivers and the groundwater to the lake, it would dilute it. And by the time any of those chemicals got high enough for us to be worried, it would be, it would be too late. What we look at is the hot springs coming in around the edges of the lake, and that one is at Tokanu which is near Turangi, where we were yesterday morning, we would see it much earlier changing in those hot springs. So that's where we go and measure the chemistry. Very good. And we'll have question number two now, please. Sorry, I think I caught that that was Amy. Amy, you're going to need to be a little bit closer because we can't hear you. Just make sure you're speaking directly into uh, the computer. I only caught a little bit of that, sorry. Can you repeat that? <laughs> um, how can you tell if You might have come through on the chat down here, I think. Yeah, I've put it in the chat. I've popped it in the chat. There we go. How can we tell if a supervolcano is in a building phase, potentially culminating at some undetermined point in the future in a large-scale eruption again in New Zealand? Amy. Ooh, that's a hard one. Ben, <laughs> think of answering that one. <laughs> um, I think... The, the answer to that is probably the building phase will take a long, long time, maybe several generations. And, and that's why to, to get that amount of magma, you need this long-term monitoring. And it would be exactly all these screens that we'll be getting up here, but instead of looking on a day-to-day timescale, we'll be looking at a year-to-year timescale and looking at trends that are building up, you know, maybe the volcano is very, very, very slowly inflating as magma is accumulating. 
maybe your gas monastery and your springs are very gradually changing. And I think before any eruption, and particularly before a super eruption, you would, you would see these, these signals start ramping up and things would start changing much, much faster. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the message is these things happen over a long time and through all of the monitoring that we have, you'd have to use everything together. You'd have to look at earthquakes and gas and deformation and visual observations and satellites all at the same time and put that information all together um, to see that building. Yeah, and I guess that take home that Ben's pointing to here is for it to go super, it would take one, two, three generations, three lifetimes, that amount of time to build up enough magma deep down and we would see it coming and we don't see that coming now. So we can be virtually certain that we're not about to go super or anything. We might have a little eruption and even then, we, uh, we expect we'd see those changes Ben's talking about ahead of time and things are nice and quiet at the moment. Sounds good to me. Keep it quiet, I say, because uh, obviously a huge volcano system like Topor um, could could produce an eruption at any time, but nice to know that it's not going to be a super eruption, those really, really massive ones. And of course, you can find out more about super volcanoes on the LEMS website as well. And now we'll have question number three, please. Is Yellowstone more likely to erupt again before Lake Taupo? Ah, that's a good question. I was wondering the same thing myself, actually, after that, that last answer. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, certainly, it, it's, uh, it's, it's the other you know, kind of most obvious supervolcano we always see in the news. It actually isn't as active as the, <laughs> kind of the Topor supervolcano complex, the whole area from Topor through to Tarawera. So in terms of just any eruption, including the small eruptions, we're probably more likely to see one in the Topo or Tarawera area. It's still really unlikely in your lifetime and it would still be quite small, not super. Uh, I think we said this in one of the other Q and A's, but I'll say it again today. If you're interested in what a smaller eruption, the type that might happen, you know, once every thousand years or so looks like, you can Google Chaiten, C-H-A-I-T-E-N. And it's an eruption back in about 2009 in Chile and you can see how that, how that progressed. There's great photos on the internet. We go back there every few years to see how, see how things are getting on after it finished, and the whole area has recovered beautifully over the last 10 years. So really disruptive, but manageable. And uh, yeah, probably a little more likely than Yellowstone to have those little ones, but at the super end of things, we really can't forecast when the next one's gonna be between us and Yellowstone. But really unlikely, and you're not gonna see it in your lifetime because we're not seeing that magma build right now. Good to know. Okay, question number four now, please. My name's I think that question was, are all volcanoes rhyolite calderas? Is that correct? Thumbs up? Are all super volcanoes rhyolite ah, calderas? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Barry, and thanks, Rebecca. Ben and I have already had a bit of an argument about this, and I <laughs> yeah, ben will get into it. <laughs> this is a great question because um, it's something that um, volcanologists all over the world argue about. Um, the definition of a supervolcano is a very, very, very big eruption, more than a certain volume, and these are understood by most of us as being these huge, <laughs> explosive rhyolite 
eruptions like the stuff that we've had from, from the Taupo Volcanic Zone and like Yellowstone. But if you also just think about the volume of magma, there have also been other types of basaltic eruptions that have happened in other parts of the planet where just loads and loads of lava has leaked out and it's just kept flooding the, um, flooding the land and creating these huge volumes of, um, of lavas and other explosive eruptions. It becomes a bit of a um, semantic argument because these volumes are as big as some of these super eruptions, but they may take years and years to come out. Um, these are the type of the eruptions that were associated with extinction events. Maybe some of them have been partially blamed for the, getting rid of the dinosaurs because also lots of gas comes out at the same time as all these lavas. So some volcanologists would say, no, super volcano, it's got to be explosive, it's got to be wild, it's got to happen, boom, like that. Other volcanologists who want to have the biggest eruption in the world that they discover, they will say actually these things also qualify as a super eruption, even though they happen over a long time frame because they have these huge volumes and huge impacts for the planet. Mm, so I guess it depends on what you're looking at, whether you're looking at explosivity or volume or destructiveness or all sorts of things. And I guess. Um, it's quite important for scientists to look at all things to really judge how much impact a volcano is going to have. Definitely. Yeah. Very good. And moving on to our next question, please. Um, my name is Finn, and does new pumice get generated without an eruption? Because it always seems to be floating on the lake. Do you want? Yeah. Thanks, Finn. So. I love pumice. Um, again, it's one of those things that I can make in my lab back at the University of Canterbury. I can take a bit of um, a bit of obsidian and put it in one of my furnaces, and it puffs up like a piece of popcorn and makes pumice. Because basically, pumice is just a bit of magma that's grown lots and lots of bubbles. And the way that that happens is usually when the magma rises, it reaches to lower and lower pressures because it's getting closer to the surface, all those bubbles grow and it puffs up. And this results in a, an eruption. It could be an explosive eruption, or it could be you can actually get eruptions that happen underwater quite passively where pumice is being produced on the bottom of the ocean or bottom of a lake floor and it's kind of bobbing up as bits of pumice. So those are all associated with eruptions. But in the case of, um, of Lake Topor, it's the reason you see pumice on the lake all the time is because the whole landscape around Lake Topol is made of pumice from the previous eruptions. So any kind of erosion that's going on with the lake or being brought in in the rivers is constantly eroding the old landscape from the old eruptions and bringing pumice into the lake that washes up on the shore. And you'll, the way you can tell it's not from eruption is if you pick it up, these, these ones are nice and round because they've been bobbing around in the lake and bashing into each other in the river, getting round. But if, if you start finding lots and lots of sharp, angular, big chunks of pumice, then you should probably give Graham a call because that could mean that there is something going on. Oh, good to know. Be on the search for that pumice. And we're now up to question six, please. Hi, my name's Hayley, and could we get a super, super volcano in Auckland? Good question, Hayley. I can take that one. So I do a, quite a bit of work in Auckland as well as the super volcano system. 
And uh, we can be really definitively sure about the answer here, and the answer is no. So Auckland produces really small volcanoes. In fact, you can kind of think of Auckland as one volcano. The magma driving Auckland comes from 100 kilometers down under Auckland. And because it's so far away, every time a little tiny blob of magma starts rising and coming up from that, it takes a slightly different pathway. And over 100 kilometers, that can be over 20 or 30 kilometers. That's why the little volcano vents in Auckland are all in different places, because it's coming up different ways from different places. But each time, it's a really tiny amount of magma. It's, um, they're some of the smallest eruptions we have in New Zealand. One of the reasons we care about them so much, though, is because a third of the population live right on top of them. But the chance of them, them erupting is not very likely in your lifetime. It's, it's in the kind of same ballpark, actually, as a, any eruption in the Tatawira area. But the size of the eruption is completely different. And it, it's because it's a different kind of magma. It's black basalt magma coming from deep down, comes up in tiny little batches, and the types of eruption it tends to make are fluid lava flows, little scoria cones. Sometimes it can have an explosive hole in the ground like Papuki Oraraki Basin, but you're not gonna go anywhere near super. It's just not the right kind of magma and it's not the right amount of magma. And Graham, because that magma is rising up in a, a new place, mm -hmm. finding a new new area to come out of, you, you'd get quite a bit of warning of that, wouldn't you, as it, it well, rises up? Well, we, we try to narrow that down more and more every year. 100 kilometers down is a really long way to look. And so we've got a toolbox here of several things we use to look for magma moving around and maybe erupting, like cameras, but that's pretty late. Uh, seism <laughs> seismic signals from earthquakes, ground deformation, changes in chemistry and hot springs. There aren't even any hot springs in Auckland from the magma because it's so deep. So if it was rising, it'd be really hard to tell 100 kilometers down. And at a certain point, it would get easier and easier, maybe 20 or 30 kilometers down. So we, we probably would have weeks to months of warning, but it could be as little as days. And we're trying to narrow that certainty down and be able to look deeper and deeper. That's kind of the thrust of a lot of our research in Auckland. Mm. You're tricky to know how, how quickly that magma is going to rise up mm. from such a long, mm. such a huge depth. Excellent. And we're now up to the last question from Hablock North High School. Question number seven, please. Uh, my name's Oliver. There, there is a geothermal electricity station at Taupo. Why don't we have one at Tongariro? Another great question. I can start on that. Ben can jump in. Um, it's all got to do with heat flow. So, and 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 that's coming from the total amount of magma. So, the 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 special thing about that. Topo volcano, uh, super volcano system from Topo right through beyond Tarawera, right up to uh, Kawara, is it's got a massive factory driving it down at about 20 to 30 kilometers. Uh, it's one of the most productive places on the planet for magma to be coming from much deeper and, and building up down there. And that means there's a heck of a lot of heat coming up through the ground, way more than anywhere else in New Zealand. And that heat uh, is partly in the form of gas and partly in the form of water coming out of the magma. And it also um, is just heating up the rock. So rainwater getting down in cracks throughout that whole area is getting heated up way more than other places do. So throughout that whole area, the groundwater at hot spring locations is just super hot. It's actually, deep down, it's steam, super, super hot steam. And it's a great place to, to tap in and, and drive electricity. Whereas everywhere else, even at the other volcanoes, the cone volcanoes, there just isn't that much heat in the ground and it's, it's just nowhere near as much potential to drive electricity and, 
I don't know, Ben, do you want to explain a little bit about how that electricity is generated, maybe? Uh, well, just to be um, specific, so there are, you know, tens of, power, uh, more than 10 geothermal power stations yes. in and around Topo and all the way up to Rotorua. So we yes. do, you do have them um, all over the place in that central area. Yeah. And just, yeah, and there haven't been any developed on the cone volcanoes, exactly as Graham said. I mean, also... I mean, you could. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't produce anywhere near the amount of power. So the, the return on investment would be... You know, really low, and it's a national park, it's a national taonga, so we would never want to do that to the ground there anyway. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> And I guess it, it's all down to how far you want to, to drill down and knowing where that, that resource is. Ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about what they're doing in Iceland around geothermal energy, because that's pretty exciting. Yeah, in Iceland there's a really exciting project, and that is to, um, to a geothermal power station, I'll tell you a story. So a geothermal power station um, um, in the north of Iceland at a volcano called Krefla was, was trying to drill deeper to get some super critical steam, which is basically just really, really hot, efficient steam, great for generating energy. And instead of getting steam, they had magma coming up one of their drill holes. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting. Um, and at, at the time, everyone was a little bit worried, but then they realized, actually, this was a great way to generate lots and lots of energy. Um, and it also a great way to learn about what magma is really like when it's down in its kind of home environment um, and a great way to, to monitor a volcano. So there's a, a crazy gang of scientists all around the world who are planning to go back to that magma chamber in Iceland and drill into the magma this time on purpose and try and make cheaper energy and do better monitoring. And uh, luckily it's a long way from New Zealand so we can learn from it at a safe distance. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find out more about that on the Iceland natural hazards field trip that we did last year. Check out that website. Okay, thank you very much, Havelock North High School. Great to be able to answer your questions this morning and good job with asking those. Um, obviously done quite a bit of research on them. Uh, it looks like we've got some people that have got a change of class, so we'll say a, a big goodbye to them. But well done, Havelock North High School. And thank you very much to our experts here that have answered our questions so well. Thanks, Joe, Graham and Ben. So a big round of applause for everybody today. Well done. And now we're going to open up to our listening schools. If they have questions, you can pop down to the little chat bubble at the bottom of your screen. If you click on that, it will open your chat pod and you can type in any extra questions that you might have. And we'll stick around for a few minutes to be able to answer those. And Barry from the Loon's office will curate the session, so he'll be able to read out the questions for us. So I've got my own one to put in there. What's the oldest topal eruption that you can see evidence of in the rocks? So I, I work on how old eruptions are using argon-argon dating. I take little crystals and I take them away to the United States. That's where the lab that we're lucky to use is. Put them in a nuclear reactor and then put them in a special machine and it tells me how old the rocks are, or well, roughly anyway. And 
the, the oldest one I've dated from a, from a caldera eruption, like a, a big eruption, a really big eruption in the, in the Tokuo volcano or super volcano system, is about 1.6 million years old. So there are rocks over in the uh, west of Fakamaru in the hills there that have been erupted from about that area about 1.6 million years ago. That's a huge amount of time. And since then, we think we've had about 29 or 30 other really big eruptions. Technically, only four of them have been super. There's been a couple back at about a million years, 1.2 million years, then one at about 350,000 years, and then the, the most recent super eruption on the planet is the Oruanui eruption, which formed the depression that's filled with Lake Taupo. So the youngest one is there, but the oldest one's back at about 1.6 million years, and they've just kind of trucked on intermittently through time. They're not really even in time, though, so it's not like we can say we're overdue or we've got a lot of time or anything. They just kind of seem to be random in time. And that last uh, super eruption of Topol was 25,000? 25,500 years ago. So it's still a long time in human years. Quite yeah. young in volcano years though. And it can get quite confusing because in actual fact, you can have a massive eruption, which doesn't actually qualify as a super eruption because it hasn't had that much um, explosivity so even though it's not a super eruption it can still be really really large can't it that's right yeah yeah just remember though those biggest ones are really rare and we don't think we're primed for one now so they're, they're fun to fun to think about they're awesome but don't be worried about them because we're we're not going to see one in our lifetimes oh yeah so pete and the background is asking um what the definition of super is so a scientist somewhere just chose 500 cubic kilometers of magma as the threshold for super, right? And you know, you've, got to, you've got to start somewhere. A cubic kilometer is a massive number. It's a cube of magma, kilometer wide by a kilometer deep by a kilometer high. You've got to erupt 500 or more of those of magma to get to be super. Oh, and for comparison, there's 56 cubic kilometers of water in Lake Topol. <laughs> that is a good comparison. <laughs> so we really are talking massive. And we also thought uh, yesterday that we should have a naming competition, Graham, for the Taupo Super Volcano. Do you, do you want to give these um, students an idea of why we should rename? Well, the word Taupo just gets really confusing because as geologists, we love the word. It's a lovely place and we've just used it to name a few too many things. I mean, it, it's an area, Tangata uh, Whenua, use Toponuiatia to refer to the area and then you have Lake Topor and then we use the name about four times. We talk about the, the Topor volcano, we talk about the Topor eruption which is actually just the one about 1800 years ago, then we talk about the Topor volcanic zone which is everything right through Fakati White Island and then finally we're saying the Topor super volcano system. So I think the super volcano probably deserves its own name rather than just um, attaching it and confusing it with the word topo again. But we're going to have to have a, a think about that across a lot of people because a lot of people live all the way from Topo to Tarawera and they all probably have a bit of an opinion on that. Mm, I bet. So interesting Mount to hear Tarawera. that the super volcano <laughs> doesn't quite spread out to include Bacardi. No. Whereas the Topol volcanic zone does include all those yeah. volcanoes. So hence it can get a little bit confusing. Sorry, Alrighty, Barry. 
So there's there's a number of there, but one I've just chosen um, from Mitchell from Shauna's class. How long did the eruption of the supervolcano at Topo last? So we've not really talked, we've talked about how much stuff comes out, but how mm. long does an eruption last for a supervolcano? We haven't, talked, we haven't talked about that. Very good question. <laughs> ben is refusing to answer this question. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's really hard to work it out because it's 25 and a half thousand years ago. We've got a good friend, Professor Colin Wilson at Victoria University who spent a lot of his life trying to understand the eruptions of Lake Topor, a super eruption, and you know he can narrow it down to days and weeks for you know the main explosive part of the eruption. The collapse for the caldera might be as little as hours or a day or two, which is just an incredibly short time. But the actual release of magma probably trucks on um, for quite a while. Uh, after you've had the really explosive phase of any of these eruptions, you often have magma more gently leaking out and forming little lavas and things like that. You might have other explosive eruptions that truck on. So you can have it, it activity going on for years after kind of it all starts up, even though the actual main big explosive part might be as little as days or a few weeks. Is that fair, Ben? Yeah, most of the volume comes out very quickly. Yeah. Very, very quickly and... Very, very, very quickly. Impressively. <laughs> <laughs> you try and squeeze 500 cubic kilometers of magma out of the oh. ground in a few days. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one great big explosion of an unknown time frame, but obviously pretty quick. We're going to be heading to Tapapa later today, and one of those videos will be looking. We we were lucky enough to get to work with Tapapa to build an animation of the, the way we think that eruption happened visually, and um, you'll be able to see some snippets of that. And when you come to Tapapa and see. Bio, the new nature exhibit, you can watch that whole video and kind of get a better feeling for how quickly that happens and how dramatic it is. Mm, yeah. Thanks. Almost end of the world stuff, but luckily it's not, not going to happen in your to lifetime. our world at the moment. <laughs> Actually, this is a good time to, to reinforce. The, the thing that you're going to see in your lifetime is unrest. We say unrest and we're talking about the magma, four or five kilometers down in little, little small patches. Every now and then it wakes up turns over and almost certainly just goes back to sleep again. And when that happens, we can get little clusters of earthquakes. We can even see the ground deform a bit, centimeters or even a few meters sometimes, and the hot springs can change. And, and we do see that every few decades in the, in the Taupo through Tarawera area. And it, it's almost certainly nothing to be worried about and we're watching it really closely. So that's the most likely thing you're gonna see and it almost always just goes back to sleep. And so that's also a reassuring thing. It's, that can be a little bit scary at the time, but it, it does happen quite a lot and it usually just goes back to sleep. Thanks. Good to know. So, it's important to monitor our volcanoes. Yep. Um, one from Shauna's one about how tall is the tallest volcano and I presume like when we have a super volcano and it goes, you end up with a big hole in the ground instead of a big tall yeah. volcano. So. How do you get a really tall volcano? How is it built and which are the tallest yeah. ones? So most volcanoes grow by you erupt and you form a layer. Then you erupt another, you form another layer. So lava builds up and up and up. And you grow volcanoes that way. Um, people measure volcanoes in different ways. So you can measure a volcano from where it started growing. So in that case, you can think of some of the Hawaiian volcanoes as some of the tallest volcanoes 
um, on the planet because they've grown all the way up from the sea floor. Um, the really, if you want to have the big daddy of the solar system, you want to go to Mars. On Mars, there's this amazing volcano called Olympus Mons. And that is truly a what the hell tall is it, do you remember? It's big. <laughs> Several kilometers high. I don't want to put a number on it because I'll be wrong. Yeah, ask Google. Google is smarter than either me or Graham. That's almost <laughs> always the case. Um, but yeah, very, very, very high. And it's an amazing thing though, because some volcanoes, the Hawaiian volcanoes, the earth isn't actually strong enough to keep them up. Yeah. And they actually start sinking. As they get too big, they're too heavy, and the, the Earth's crust can't support them, so they start sinking. But on Mars, because Mars is actually cooled down now, it's a smaller planet, the, 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 um, the crust and the solid part of Mars is much thicker and it's much stronger. So then the volcano, it can still stand up quite high without sinking, keep growing and growing and growing, but it hasn't been growing for a long, long, long time. So Olympus Mons is a very, very millions of millions of years old. So, Renee wants to know how long have volcanoes been around? And I'm thinking we go back to the, the beginning of Earth. Like, yeah, I like to, uh, I like to, well, I, all rocks started out as kind of volcanic rocks, or started out as magma anyway, maybe not volcanic rocks. The planet, when it first started, was really hot, it was just a big ball of molten magma. And the crust, the core bit that we live on, has formed over time. Uh, so early on, it was just kind of all magma. And then the crust started forming and there would have been volcanoes through that crust everywhere. And actually, ever since then, the, the number and rate of volcanoes has just been dropping off. So it, it would have been a lot harder to live here hundreds of millions of years ago or you know, a billion years ago because the volcanoes were a real problem. Yeah, Do you I'm, want to answer? Yeah, 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 I think I've, I've just had a bit of a brainwave. I've just suddenly realized that probably every single element on the surface of this planet, including every element that makes all of us, us yeah, up, yeah. we are all coming from volcanoes. Because from that's, magma, anyway. From magma, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, all the gases and all the elements that make up the rocks and everything, we ought to move all volcanoes at heart. <laughs> I reckon this might be worth asking Joe to okay. kind of bring in a little bit of Maparanga Māori here, because we're really talking about our whakapapa and the connection to rocks. Does that bring any bells from a Maparanga Māori point of view? Oh, Kiharoi from previous videos. Hi guys, I'm back. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, when we talk about whakapapa in, in Te Ao Māori, you know, uh, we talk about Ranginui and Papa Tuanuku, and everything in existence um, comes from them, pretty much. So, when Ranginui and Papa Tuanuku, they, they hooked up and they had their kids, um, and then, uh, they, they, then those kids had their kids, and eventually we came from them. Um, so, we heard in some of the previous videos, I think Pauroto spoke about how Tāne Mahuta hooked up with Hine Tupari. They had all the mountains. So Tane Mahutau, he also hooked up with another woman called uh, Hine Tsitama. And from Hine Tsitama and Tane come humans. So mountains are sort of like our brothers and sisters. Um, so basically what we say is we descend from the earth and the sky and everything in between. And so that's our link with, with the volcanoes and the rocks and the trees and the ocean and everything else, everything that exists. Sure, yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew. He just, he was, 
we've been having chats about this on the drive over the last few days, and that's exactly what Ben's saying, just using some slightly different words. So it's the Matarana is the same. So just the other thing too, like when we speak about volcanoes, you know, even humans have eruptions. Sometimes it's through emotions and we get angry, and sometimes it's a patero or a fart. <laughs> you know? So it all builds up in your stomach and then it's got to go somewhere. Sometimes it comes up and we have a burp, and sometimes it goes down and we have a fart, and other things follow as well. <laughs> like rocks. <laughs> so, lots to think about there, and it really reinforces how connected we are with nature and how much we have to look after it because even though sometimes we think of volcanoes as being destructive they've also allowed us to exist in the first place so very important that we look after our environment and barry we've probably got time for just one or two more questions if there are any yep oh there's lots um so probably the one how many volcanoes are in the Ring of Fire from Maddie and Shauna's class? And mm. yeah, and maybe where are they concentrated or which ones are active at the moment? Well, I'll start and I'm sure I won't give the full answer. So just jump in then. The uh, many, many hundreds of, well, actually over a thousand, thousands, by the t especially by the time you think about the ocean floor. So most... The majority of New Zealand's volcanoes are underwater. The, there's an arc of volcanoes from Kuopehu that goes all the way to Tonga as part of that ring of fire. And a lot of our volcanoes, the majority, are underwater beyond the Bay of Plenty. And that's true all the way through the Pacific and around through to the Philippines. And that ring goes all the way around. And if you pick just one country above the water, like Japan, Japan counts between 100 and 110 active volcanoes just in Japan on the ring of fire, just above the water, and they've got a whole bunch underneath. They kind of fight it out with Indonesia, actually. Indonesia argues it's got the most, um, with 100 to 110. So that gives you some idea just for these little segments. Um, in terms of where they're concentrated, Ben? I think Indonesia and Japan are the most active part of the, the ring of fire, yeah. And, and maybe followed up by um, the Aleutian chain through Alaska. There's a lot of volcanoes there and also some bits of South America. There, yep, are, some, yep. there are some sections of South America and Chile and Peru that have you know, big concentrations of volcanoes. Some super volcanoes down there too. And don't forget New Zealand. Oh, of course, New Zealand. I mean, you know, the amount that's onshore in New Zealand, we just drove it in two days. It's a small part onshore and they're really concentrated. And actually, we've got only 5 million people compared to over 100 or 200 in Japan and Indonesia's case. We actually, by my calculation, have more volcanoes on, on land per capita than Japan or Indonesia. <laughs> Always got to find a way to win names. <laughs> Another claim to fame for Kiwis. So, <clears throat> hmm. somebody wanted to know, the Thompson Twins wanted to know where the word volcano came from, and I've just popped it in the chat. It's from the Latin Vulcanus or Vulcan. And I think Vulcan was the god of the god of maybe war or fire or something like that. Now we might bring yet another person into the chat. Sorry to confuse things, but off off camera we've got Sylvia who you would have seen from previous videos. And Sylvia knows quite a bit about this. Kia ora. Kia ora. Nice. 
Um, so uh, from a Māori perspective, uh, you've just met Kiharua before and he spoke about us being family. And so one of, the, one of our beliefs is that Rangi and Papa, uh, Sky Father, Earth Mother, had 71 children and the baby, his name is Ruomoko, and he lives inside the stomach or the womb of Papa Tuanuku. And so for some people, uh, some tribes believe that he is still a baby. Other tribes believe that he's grown up now and married other, um, uh, other, yeah, other deities. deities underneath the world, such as Mahuika and Hinenuitipo. So that's our belief about how volcanoes have come about. Excellent. Kia ora, In terms of the actual word, you're bang on about it being Latin. And the one thing to add maybe in Italy, which is you know, the home of the Latin language, uh, they have a volcano called Volcano. So it's got, they've got, I guess, the original named Volcano. And Vulcan, that's where Vulcan dwells, I think, right? Can I also yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, last year, I, I was also in Italy with these guys and we went to an island called Ischia, and they have a fire god, and his name is Tefil. So that's just to add another. Kia ora, and the, the Māori name for volcano, for those that don't know? Puya. Puya, yeah. and you can see that on the website as well. And lots of words um, have also come from Hawaii, when you, you look at descriptions of eruptions and things, the names of lavas and all sorts. Yeah. Um, come from Hawaii because they've got so many volcanoes over there. Okay, uh, one last question, please, Barry. Um, I think this one's interesting. Is there any obsidian by Lake Taupo? Yeah, there is. Yeah, so obsidian is is a, a, a type of rhyolite. We're actually going to see how you make the different types of rock from rhyolite at Tapapa later this afternoon. Rhyolite produces obsidian. There, there are a couple of it, it, there are a couple of good places near Topor, and they're generally in lava domes. So, um, obsidian is just pumice that hasn't been frothed up. Now that's a little spoiler for the people who are on the call now. And you need to be in a place where the, the lava doesn't have a whole bunch of gas frothing it up into pumice, and that's kind of in the quietly building lava. So especially north of Lake Taupo, there's, there's lava domes. Actually at Tarawera, there's lava domes that have a description. For, for Māori, uh, Joe, you might be able to explain a little more about this. Um, the name for obsidian is actually also the name of the island where almost all the obsidian comes from. It's, um, <laughs> for Sylvia, do you want to die the name? Island. Mayor Island or? Yes. Yeah, Tuhua. So Tuhua. Is, is um here's a whakapapa to um, uh, Mia Island, which is up the eastern coast. But actually, this guy would be the best guy because he lives not far from there. Ah, yeah, um, he's just up the road. Yeah, so Tuhua, which is the name for obsidian and also the name for the island. Um, what happened, if you if you were lucky enough to go to Tuhua or Mira Island in English? When you get there, the place. Before you even hit the ground, you can see the obsidian just on, on the shores. You can see it all around the cliff sides. Um, now, in traditions, um, one of the stories says that Tuhua and Potini, which is greenstone, they were enemies 
and they had fights. And um, Tuhua was actually more stronger. He was more powerful. And so uh, the Greenstone, the Potsini, ran away. And in his journeys, he sort of came to all these little different places. And when he got there, he found um, each place he went to, he would find the army of Tuhua, which were the rocks like pumice um, and all of those, those sort of volcanic rocks that you find. Until eventually he got all the way down south where he was a founder. He was a bit safer down there and he found a safe space. And that's why these days you find greenstone down south. Um, and it's because Tuhua and the greenstone um, the deity, they, they had that fight and then greenstone had to run away and found a safe space down in the South Island. Is it, is it right to say that Tuhua is the source of almost all the really good kind of tool grade obsidian and throughout yeah, the whole country? Yeah, so. yeah. So obsidian was used, as you say, for like knives uh, or for cutting because um, it's quite sharp and it's very, you know, because it's quite a glass, it's very easy to shape. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was used for a lot of tools. And it came from the island. Yes. Yeah, yeah, mostly from the island. Ah, kia ora, kia ora. So fantastic to get all this knowledge shared this morning. Thank you very much, everybody, to um, give such great answers and to join us throughout the field trip. And thank you very much to everybody that has taken part during the week. Remember, you can listen to the recording of this on the website. And while you're there, do check out the videos from the last couple of days, our big journey from the coast at Matata all the way through to Wellington. So thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. And now you can all unmute your microphones and say a big goodbye. Ka kite ono. Bye. 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 Bye.